You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One. All right, Jeff, so the first question I always like to ask people, what were you like growing up? And you can take in whatever direction you'd like, interests, personality traits, whatever. When you think back to your childhood, what are the things that stand out? Well, I grew up in a really small town in upstate New York called Mayo Pack, and uh, very small. And it was kind of idyllic. Um, I grew up on a street, like a, a big hill, and every winter we'd be sledding. Summers we'd be playing night tag. It was um, it was a great, great place to grow up. And I, um, when I was about, I was a huge sports geek, like a huge sports geek. Like my room was covered, you know, it's cliche, but my room was covered with posters of Bo Jackson and Don Mattingly and Earl Campbell and Walter Payton and every athlete you could think just covered. And nobody in my family cared about sports except for me. I was the only one. And um, I would sit in front of the TV by myself because nobody else cared with a mitt or with a football, you know, mimicking the players. And the thing that was, I, I, just a random answer, but the thing that was big for me was there was a library. I was a big runner as a kid. Um, yeah, I ran track and cross country and all that stuff. And I used to, there's a library about a mile from us in town, the Mayo Pack public library. And they knew I was the kid who loved sports books. So whenever they get a new book in, if, well, whatever, Ron Guidry wrote an autobiography or Bo Jackson wrote, they would actually, a librarian there would call me and say, Hey Jeff, before we put it out, just so you know, Bo Jackson's new book is in, um, I'll hold it for you if you get down here quick. And I would leave my front door run the mile, mile and a half to the library with my white, I can picture my white and black library card in my hand, take out the book, run home, go into my room and just read it and absorb it. And I was just absorbing sports books from the time I was probably 10 to the time I left for college, just absorbing them. I was just fascinated by that stuff. So I was really, I was kind of a sports geek who ran a lot of road races. (laughs) Okay. So I got a few questions from that. Uh, so I had the opposite uh, childhood, I guess, in a lot of ways. Grew up in a big city in Dallas and then had a family full of sports fans. And that mm-hmm. helped cultivate my love for sports. I wasn't forced into it. I mean, it was very natural, but I look right. You know, I got my dad, look left. I got my brothers, and we're all kind of into it. So yep. what was how, – how did that help you become a sports fan, like being – maybe being the lone duck or, or – I guess, how did that dynamic of, of not having that maybe help or, or hurt or maybe help or hurt aren't the right terms here, but what was that dynamic like? All right, so I'll tell you one thing that's funny. The only sport I even care about now as far as any fandom left is uh, football, and I, I grew up a New York Jets fan, which is just the worst. <laughs> and um, the reason I became a Jets fan, it's one of my favorite stories, is I have an older brother named David. He's two years older. And when he was about maybe eight and I was six, we were sitting at the kitchen table one day, and he says, uh, I'm going to be a Giants fan. And I said, I'll be a Jets fan. He, has a, he could not, if Lawrence Taylor or Eli Manning knocked on his door, he would have no idea who they are. Like, he, he hasn't watched the Giants game since. And I've been saddled with this dog-awful franchise for the last 35 years just because my brother at age eight randomly decided to be a Giants fan. So I'd say the most, the biggest negative of it all is I got, I could have had all the, if I, if he'd said he'd been a Jets fan, I would have all these Super Bowls I would have enjoyed. Instead, <laughs> I'm stuck with this mess. Um, I think the thing, I don't, 
I think I was always a curiosity to my parents. Like they, they used to joke, like, uh, they would actually joke. They'd say, I don't, maybe, maybe you were adopted or maybe we picked the wrong kid up at the, cause it doesn't make any sense. Um, the thing I think it did for me, this isn't quite the answer, but the, the, I was in, like, I grew up in a really, really sheltered town. It was very white. It was very socially conservative. Um, New York City was only an hour and 20 minutes away, but a lot of kids I grew up with never went to New York City or they were afraid of New York City. I, my, my family, we went in all the time. But these books and sports, it sounds corny, but I swear to God it's true. Like, it really introduced me. Like, I was a huge fan of, like, Afros and Lamb Chop Sideburns and guys named, like, Raphael and Omar. And, you know, I remember, like, the Mets had a shortstop, Al Pedrique. And I just love the name Al Pedrique. And I remember Gary Templeton was the Padres shortstop. And he just looked so cool with, like, his mini fro and his cool sideburns. And I feel like what sports did for me and being that kid was it really, in a weird way, without going that many places, exposed me to all these sort of cultures that I wanted to experience and all these things I wanted to see and probably had a really pronounced impact on me becoming a sports writer. That's so... And, and then I guess with that, I'm curious, uh, it, that in combination with your, your thirst to learn and to read, like when you were, when you were reading these books at first, I guess you said that like you're around 10 when that really started, were you reading them with any thought in the back of your mind? Like, this is what I want to do. Or were you reading them totally innocently? Like, Hey, this is awesome. I love absorbing this, this material. Well, I think at first it started as innocently. And then, um, what happened is my parents, um, so my parents would not take the big dive and get me a Sports Illustrated subscription because it was 52 weeks and it was a lot, it was a lot of money. And two things happened. Number one is I, would, um, I had a neighbor. I barely knew them, but it, their name was John and Ann Daly. And they subscribed to Sports Illustrated. And every so often they would wrap up all their Sports Illustrated and put them at the curb to be picked up by the recycle guy or the garbage man. And I would run over there. I'm sure they had no idea. And steal the Sports Illustrated. And I would just put them in my room and just read to the SIs. And then... My mom signed me up for a subscription to Sport Magazine, which no longer exists, but it, only, it came once a month. And I would read that and just absorb it and love it. And I, I guess you start getting the idea, oh, this is something you can do. This is actually a profession. And I think I was a high school sophomore, and I said to my mom one day, I was like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And I remember her saying to me, um, she's like, well, you have to be realistic in your goals. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. I, gu- I guarantee you I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And to her, it was such a foreign idea because, number one, she didn't care about sports. Number two, being a journalist seemed like this thing that was like that other people did. You know, like I was a Jewish kid in New York. You become a doctor, you become a lawyer, you become a dentist, whatever. Like, it didn't seem feasible. It was like saying to my mom, I wanted to be a, a Broadway performer or, you know, sing, you know, whatever, a pop star. Um, but I think all stealing the dailies magazines, getting sport magazines, seeing that there were these writers who got paid to write about sports sort of triggered something in me. Was there one book in particular that you connected with or that you just, you know, years removed, you still kind of remember the impact it might've had on you either just the joy or, or the message or, or whatever the case might be. All right. So there are a couple of that though. It's kind of weird. There was a book, there used to be an outfielder for the Detroit Tigers named Ron LaFleur. And Ron LaFleur um, was discovered by the Tigers in prison. He was actually an inmate in a prison in Michigan. And he was a really good player on the, uh, the prison baseball team. 
And um, the Tigers went to see him. Billy Martin was a manager, and they signed him, and he wound up being an all-star in the majors. I remember getting his book as a kid. I think it was called Stealing Home, and thinking, man, this is insane. Like, again, a world I had no familiarity with. Um, it's funny. I'm writing a Bo Jackson biography as we speak, and Bo Jackson's book, Bo Knows Bo, which came out, I think, when I was 17, was a huge moment for me. Like, that book was huge to me and really influential. And the, the last one, I'd say, there was a book, and I wrote a USFL book a few years ago. There was a book when I was a kid called The One Dollar League by Jim Byrne, and it was about the USFL. And I just absorbed that book. And I wound up, when I was a senior in high school, we had to do a senior thesis uh, for, like, AP English to graduate. And they assigned a 20-page paper, which seemed huge. And I ended up writing 40 pages on the downfall of the USFL, all because of that Jim Byrne book that I read when I was a kid. And I'm sure the USFL book I wound up writing never exists if I didn't read the Jim Byrne book when I was probably 14 years old. I was going to say that uh, there's a tie there with uh, with your future endeavors. Yeah. That, that's uh, that's really interesting. Uh, okay, so you you grow up in this small town. Uh, you're kind of a lone duck in in your love for sports, and and you know I I think a lot of people that do more or less what we do, and and all you know the 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 journal and the sports journalism. There are a lot of like. I was an athlete and it stopped at some point, high school, seventh grade, college, whatever, and I wanted to stay in sports. And then there, there are people like yourself who maybe early on kind of developed this love for the, the journalism side. Uh, so when you went to college, what was what was the goal there? I mean, we were talking off air. I went to, to school close by where you are now at USC, and I knew what I at least wanted to try. I didn't know if I'd be any good at it. I didn't know if it would ever work out. But I went there with like a, a direct knowledge of what I wanted to pursue. Was that the same for you? Yeah, very much. So I, I ran one year of track and cross country at Delaware, and I was very bad. It was not my future <laughs> to be a Division One runner of any type. But I always it was a goal of mine to run Division One somewhere in college, like an absolute goal. And I did it, got my butt kicked, enjoyed it. Um, when I got so when I was a senior in high school, um, I wrote for my local weekly newspaper, the, the Patent Trader, and I got a lot of clips out of it. I learned a ton out of it. There was a sports editor named Joe Lombardi who really mentored me. And when I got to Delaware, I knew I, knew I wanted to be a journalist. Like I absolutely knew. And it's a funny thing. I um, they had a meet. You had to meet with an advisor heading into your freshman year. So I had this meeting with this advisor, which I can still picture in my head. And she said, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to write for the student newspaper this year, and one day I'm going to be editor of the paper." And she's like, "Yeah, you know, freshmen aren't allowed to write for the newspaper." And I said, yeah, I don't care. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to write for the newspaper. And it turns out she was the girlfriend of one of the outgoing like editors of the college newspaper. And she told all the people at the editor about this cocky jackass freshman who was coming in <laughs> and thought he was going to be like the man. So I showed up and they all knew I was coming. But I did have all these clips from my local paper. And I did end up writing as a freshman for the paper. And um, two things that happened as a freshman. Number one, I was so cocky. It's unlikable and so un unwelcoming of editing. They actually fired me from writing. I started writing, and one day an editor pulled me aside and said, nobody wants you up here anymore. And I, uh, I was crying in my dorm room and ended up writing a letter to them apologizing and let me write again. Um, and the other thing that happened is I, uh, I went to the University of Delaware, and at the time, Delaware and Delaware State, both 1AA schools in football, never played each other in any sports. And Delaware State was a small black college, historically black college. Delaware was this big, predominantly white college. And I told the editors, I want to write this story about Delaware playing Delaware State, not playing Delaware State. 
And they were like, yeah, okay, go ahead. But they didn't give it much thought, but sure, go ahead. And I just dug into that thing hardcore. And I wrote this story and I handed it in. And I had these really inflammatory quotes from the athletic director of Delaware and all this stuff. Well, the, the story ended up running on the front page of the student newspaper. And I think two months later, Delaware and Delaware State agreed to play in sports. And it was my first moment where I really, really saw the impact you can have if you do this rightly. And it, for me, that was huge. Just huge. That's crazy. So how, I mean, that that's, you, you always read these stories and then there's a, some sort of an impact because someone sees this or sees that. But like for that to happen so soon in college, I mean, did that just further motivate you? Like, what was that? What was that feeling like? And 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 how did that kind of impact you? I mean, you, you said it. You know, you obviously recognize the the power of what you were doing, but how did that really kind of impact you as you uh, figured out what you really wanted to pursue as as next projects or uh, next uh, you know career paths, if you will? Oh, it was. I, I can't even properly. I never talk about this, so it's actually funny to talk about. I. I can't tell you how big of a deal that was to me. And I remember a few things like um, the Wilmington, we did that story. I wrote the story and um, the Wilmington news journal, which is the biggest paper in the not very big state of Delaware did a follow-up based off of that story. And a columnist for the Wilmington news journal named Kevin Noonan wrote a column about it. And he, he praised my piece in the student newspaper. And I was just, I was floating on air. I mean, I mean, I really was floating on air. And then, we had a legendary journalist as one of the professors at Delaware, a guy named Chuck Stone. And I heard him on a radio interview later that year praising my story as the, re- and I just, you're, I always try to remember what it is to be 18, 19 years old and what older journalists mean to people from that perspective. You know, it's easy to forget as you become an older journalist, what your words mean to younger journalists. And I always try to remember that because those things really made a difference to me. And it just, I don't know. It really pumped me up. Like it really pumped me up. And it showed like, holy crap, you can actually, you do this and you can actually make an impact. And if you just work hard at it and you bust your ass and you do all these things, you have a shot of actually making things change or having people take notice. And, um, I mean, it's still one of my favorite moments of my lifetime of writing is Delaware versus Delaware state, the sports rivalry that never was that story on page one of the stupid university of Delaware newspaper. Do you still have, is that something that's like framed in your house or do you have any sort of memory of that? Like physically? Um, it's in a scrapbook. I don't have a frame. The only, the only newspaper I have framed is one of my biggest mistakes ever, which is I was student. I was, I did become editor of the student newspaper of Delaware and my senior year, I was really, really, again, really cocky and really not very sensitive. And we did a April fool's issue my senior year, which, um, it was kind of funny, but not great. And we did, um, I, it was, I always, it was the biggest mistake of my career as a, as a journalist is, um, there was, we were going through old file photos to find pictures of, uh, to use in the April Fool's issue. And I found a photo of a short statured student from several years earlier. And, you know, we're all a bunch of 20, 21 year olds and we think everything is funny and you just make fun of people once you deal. We put him on the front page of the newspaper, put a football helmet over his head with the headline midgets fight to take over Newark, Newark, Delaware is where Delaware, University of Delaware is. And um, I think it's the funniest thing ever, blah, blah, blah. A few days later, the phone rings at the office. It's this kid's mother, who still lives in the town of Newark, Delaware, just lambasting me and telling me how, how many years it took her son to get over all the mocking and the humiliation and just the stigma that's attached with being a short stature person in America. 
and the hurt in her voice, I can still hear. And uh, long story, that's the, that's the one issue I actually have somewhere uh, in large part because it reminds me of what a jackass I was. That, Jeff, that's interesting because I, I feel like sometimes, and I don't want to, at risk of generalizing, there are people who, um, and, and, and maybe this is a little different, but there are people... Uh, writers, broadcasters that they're like, there's no empathy and it's like, well, you know, that's just, that's the reality. They, they are this, or they did that. They shouldn't have said it if they didn't want, you know, it's, it's, but like, I've heard you before in an interview uh, comment on something you, you, the way you kind of approached writing about Charles Haley in your book about the Cowboys, which is outstanding, but that, that you kind of feel bad about that. And you bringing that up now, I guess, I don't want to like jump to a conclusion, but it seems like you are someone who will kind of reflect a lot. Uh, and I'm wondering how that that's kind of impacted you as you've grown from that cocky freshman to where you are now as a, you know, as a, as an author, a journalist and, and, you know, a parent and, you know, taking on all these different roles from when you were just this 18, 19 year old kid. I mean, it's the one thing about, um, it's the one thing about writing books that I really struggle with in a lot of ways. Like, uh, the Haley thing is, a, I mean, Haley's a good example. Like, I just wasn't, it all seems so funny to me. There's this guy and he's masturbating in front of teammates and blah, 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 and ha, 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 ha. And then you're like, like, I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal to think, maybe this guy's bipolar. Maybe this guy suffers from severe mental disorders that actually, maybe I should back off a little bit. And, and I kind of hate that. And at the same time, it's like uh, I wrote Walter Payton's biography and Walter Payton was deceased by the time, you know, I was working on it. And there was one part of the book where I wrote about, um, he had a test and it found out he had herpes. Right. And I put it in the book and it just, I was just thinking later, like, like why, what did that add to the story? Like what, that doesn't add anything. It doesn't really tell you anything about him. It doesn't make the book any better. It's just almost like using information because showing off that you found information. And I feel like when I was much younger, I just, it was just head down, do what you got to do, get everything you can and put it out there. And I don't know what's happened, but I've definitely become, I always say to my kids, I have two kids and one of my like life mantras is don't make someone's life harder because you're in it. And I really believe that. And it's one of the catch 22s of writing books because inevitably you're going to find information when you do a biography that, you you know, you kind of have to write about but it's not going to please the person or make the person always look good. And it just, it bothers me. I, I don't know what the answer to it is, but it bothers me. So I, I want to get to uh, the the book that I just read of yours, Three Ring Circus, which certainly I'm sure there were some hurdles and some interesting elements to this because this is about the the Lakers dynasty in the Shaq Kobe era. Obviously, Kobe Bryant's no longer with us. That's a, a complicated deal because I, I think uh right or wrong when someone dies especially the way that you know he did uh you you hear an outpouring of all the great and the the not so great of which there were certainly uh plenty with Kobe it it, it just goes to the back and uh this book does not ignore that stuff uh and and I I'm just curious okay so when did you start like the the when when did the idea come about uh, for a timeline purpose? When when was this idea something that you were going to pursue? So all right, so I always I was rap I was done with the USFL book, which came out two years ago, two and a half years ago now, and 
I started to think of different books. And I'd written a book called Showtime about the Magic Johnson era. And I just thought, um, you know, I thought Shaq Kobe, Phil Jackson, huge subjects, regional, because I live in Southern California, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd say about probably three years ago is when it first started germinating in my head. Okay, and so what in what stage of the process were you when when the helicopter accident occurred and Kobe Kobe passed? I was done. Like the book was done. I think it was fully edited. I was literally sitting in a coffee shop when I found out that he died. A friend of mine texted me and said, uh, whatever rumor is Kobe Bryant just died in a helicopter crash. So everything was completed. Um and it was sort of like uh you know, after the shock and everything of it, I, I I couldn't rewrite the book, and I don't think I would have rewritten the book in in any way. But um, I just wanted to add something at the beginning to maybe add some perspective to it, which was pretty much what they let me do. Okay, so how far? Okay, so when when he when when it was January, right? I think it was January, yeah, January twenty sixth, right? Okay, yeah, because yeah. um, I remember I was getting ready to broadcast a G League basketball game and. You know, it, it just the way it impacted the entire basketball community. It was a day game. Mm-hmm. We were sitting there, and it was like we weren't sure if we were even going to play the game. And Del Harris happened to be uh, yeah. there, and so we had we brought Del Harris onto the broadcast to talk about you know his uh, his his memories and and obviously his relationship with Kobe, which you know it, you go into in the book. It's not like this was uh, some incredible Tim Duncan, Greg Popovich relationship, but I mean, it just so happened he was there and, uh, and he was, I guess, a, a somewhat significant part of Kobe's entry into the NBA. Uh, but for you, so was there ever a consideration? Like, do I change certain things? I mean, I, I know you ultimately didn't, but like, was that an easy decision? Was that like a back and forth with the editors? Like how did that all kind of play out? Well, there was never a talk of changing things. The, I guess the main debate was what do you do with the publishing schedule? Um, when we got, like, so first it happens, and I'm not just saying this, like, at first you're just horrified. And I actually had a phone conversation. Someone called me the day he died. Um, and people just make mistakes. So this, this is actually a really good person. But someone said to me, so this is good for your book, right? And I was just like, I, I was genuinely horrified by the question. Because I, obviously, if you could say, all right, this book never exists, but Kobe Bryant and the nine people on the, on the helicopter are alive, of course you, you do that. So the first reaction is horror and sadness and, and et cetera, et cetera. And then when you finally think about, well, there's this book, what do we do with it? I guess the debate was, like, first people are like, maybe you should move the publication date up. And to me, that was a non-starter. I wasn't going to take, you just don't take advantage of someone dying. It just doesn't feel right. You're not like, oh, we, could, we should recapitalize on so-and-so's death. Like, no. Then it was, is it too soon? You know, the book came out September 22nd. The crash came in January. Should we move it back? And I just thought, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong, or there, if there is a right or wrong, I thought eight months was a solid amount of time where you could come out with a book and it's not going to feel like you're taking advantage of a situation. Plus, it was already the previously scheduled date. So that was really the discussion was, what do we do with the release date? And ultimately, we just kept the original date. I've I've heard you've been asked this uh, question before, but uh, just for people who who didn't hear the answer, like I was able to, uh, I guess surprisingly to me, and and I think you even acknowledged it was surprising to you. You didn't receive the type of blowback 
for just sharing the honest truth about Kobe through the words of of his teammates, coaches, etc., that you thought you would have in, in in light of you know what had happened to him in the you know the the, the recent year. Yeah, no, I, it's funny. I had a I have a cousin who lives in New Jersey named Daniel, and uh, I sent him a copy of the book early, and he t- this is before the book came out, and he wrote me back, and he's like, Jesus, this is going to be really bad. I'm really worried for you, and I was like, oh. <laughs> really? And then I sent it to one of the players. There's one of the guys in the book. I won't name him, but he was like, oh, I don't know. I'm worried how this is going to go over. And I was like, oh, really? And the more I thought about it, I was just, because people are really, people love Kobe Bryant and they should, and people are passionate about him and they should be. And he meant something to people. And, and I just was really concerned that people would see it as here comes some jackass author capitalizing on Kobe Bryant's death. You know, that they wouldn't know the backstory of the book. They're not going to, most people aren't on Twitter. Most people aren't following me on Facebook. They don't know the intricacies of it. They just see a book out. And maybe the thought is up, here's some jackass trying to make money off of the death of a, of a famous basketball player. So I kind of steeled myself for that. And I would say, here we are, whatever, two, almost three months later, I've probably gotten maybe eight negative comments. So, in the book, and and I'm not going to go into too much because I want people to read it, and I don't know that I could even encapsulate, you know, the the essence of it in in 30 seconds, uh, whatnot. But you you speak to a ton of people. I mean, you get uh, significant teammates, guys at the end of the bench, uh, opponents, coaches, yeah. front. I mean, it's 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 such a great. I think what I loved most about it, and you know, I, I I've loved I've read the the USFL book and the, the Cowboys book uh, of yours as well. Uh, but like there, there's so many perspectives here. So it's not like you don't walk away feeling like, oh, this is a, a pro fill in the blank book. I mean, it's just there, there are too many different voices, different backgrounds to feel that way. Um, but there was, I mean, you really do get a, a, a pretty good picture uh, of what Kobe was like and why he was perceived and treated the way he was and. Uh, you know, why maybe the relationships he had or didn't have were that way. Was that a surprise to you? Uh, the the depth of maybe how he carried himself and how that impacted others? Yeah, I didn't know. It's funny because every now and then, again, like there hasn't been that much criticism, but the, the one main one is this guy, this guy went in with an ax against Kobe Bryant. And it's kind of like how you get, I've heard you've gotten this sometimes. We're like, oh, he hates the fill-in-the-blank team. That's why he... You know, or, oh, he hates that player. And you're like, I'm always the same. I'm like, listen, man, I'm a suburban dad with two kids. I don't care if your team wins or loses. I don't go in with a grudge. I don't care. I don't have any grudge against any players. I don't love Shaq. I don't hate Kobe. Like, I just want to tell the story accurately, you know? And so for me, you sit down with Rick Fox, and you sit down with Samaki Walker, and you sit down with Shaq, and you sit down with Phil, and this narrative starts developing. And you have to remember, this is all before Kobe died. So it's not like people were sort of more reluctant to discuss him because they were concerned about sort of how it would come off. And just a repeated theme. It wasn't that they hated Kobe Bryant. It's certainly not that they hated Kobe Bryant at age 40, but that the Kobe Bryant of those years, 96 to 04, was kind of a pain in the ass and a tough guy to play with and not the best teammate and really bad when it came to sort of young players, rookies, undrafted free agents, guys like that. So when you hear it over and over again, 
it's not you being a biased author. It's you reporting what actually happened and what people say and what their recollections were and what their takes were. So I wouldn't say I was surprised by the fact that he was unliked. I would say I was surprised by the volume of that dislike. Jeff, you might have mentioned it in the book, either the very beginning or the end. Uh, as a matter of fact, you, you probably did. Uh, but did you? Did he deny requests to talk? Yeah. Okay. I, I tried reaching out, and he, he did not. So he uh, and I wasn't. I always say this, not nothing else. I always say like nobody owes it to me to talk. Like nobody owes it to me. You're not making money off of it. You don't have final say in the book. I don't let you see the book before it comes out. So it's kind of like a guy like Shaq who wanted to talk. I think for guys like that, they see it as a sort of, you know, part of their legacy. And this is who I was. And it's important to get it out. But I never, I never, I never was mad at Kobe Bryant for not talking. He has every right not to. Did you have a relationship with him in any capacity before that? Or I mean, zero. Zero. Okay. Never right. even met him. Never met him. The, the Shaq stuff. I, I think the Shaq stuff's fascinating. I guess to take a step back from just him, one of my, like, oh my gosh, this is crazy these are human beings two moments when i first started broadcasting for the rangers was learning that you know these guys are not just brimming with confidence at all times like i i, I don't know why the perception is like these guys they, they have no confidence issues they're professional athletes like they make all this money they probably all think they're just like the greatest guys out there but then you you realize like the dynamics in a clubhouse or a locker room some guys do but other guys need that reassurance, just like a 14-year-old kid trying to make the varsity team. And uh, I, I guess what stood out to me about Shaq was that here's this guy who's just like larger than life, but uh, he, you know, he dealt with some of, I guess, the same internal challenges that, uh, again, that 14-year-old kid might, and wanting to be liked and wanting to to get that acceptance. I, that to me was was really interesting. I'm curious. What was the biggest, like, oh, wow, like, I can't believe this. Like, when you take a step back and, and consider all that you learned through the hours and hours of conversations you had with people, whether it made it into the book or it didn't. All right, well, first of all, I want to say, I, I think your observation is one that shocks a lot of sports fans. And I agree a thousand percent with you. Um, sports, professional sports in particular, is a land of insecurity. There's always someone coming along to get your job, Right. You can be cut at any time. Um, in the NFL, contracts aren't guaranteed. There's always a young guy. There's always blah, blah, blah. There are people watching you. They're, Why is this guy getting this endorsement? I'm not. Why is this guy? It's the idea that these guys, like, I get it because they make a lot of money and they're oftentimes really good looking and then they're athletic crime and blah, blah, blah. But there's so much insecurity. And I do think one thing about Shaq, like, the surprising thing to me, the thing that I did not know going in, you look at Shaq and you look at Kobe and you think, well, Kobe's going to be, you know, he's 17 when he's drafted by the Lakers. He's going to come in. And I'm sure he was uncertain. And Shaq was this veteran and he was established and he was a high school player at the NBA. And he's a secure. Like, Shaq was the one who really needed the love and needed people to respond to him and needed sort of um, to be embraced. And Kobe just didn't care. And that's not an insult to Kobe. It's kind of impressive. Like, he did not care. He was there to kill you from day one. And. You know, first, I, I interviewed a guy, and I haven't talked about where I got this, but there was a guy who played at DePaul named David Booth, and he was with the Lakers in the summer of 96, and he was invited to training camp out of uh, Summer League. So he's there for the first team meeting, and all the players are standing in a circle, 
and introducing themselves. Dell Harris is like, everyone introduce yourself. All right, hey, I'm Nick Van Essel. Hey, I'm Eddie Jones. Hey, I'm Shaq. Yo, I'm Kobe Bryant, Lower Marion High School. Nobody here is going to punk me. That was Kobe Bryant's introduction to the Lakers. And it was so different than Shaq. And Shaq is there buying people suits and taking them out for dinner and buying everyone Rolexes. And he, it's sincere, and he's the greatest teammate I've ever written about, greatest superstar teammate I've ever written about. But definitely part of it is a need for love and sort of being embraced. And Kobe just, he just wanted to freaking stab you in the heart and dunk on you. And it's a pretty remarkable dynamic. And that's definitely a theme that you kind of weave in and out throughout, you know, sharing all these stories. Uh, I'm curious, Jeff, I, I, I've, my writing experience ended my freshman year at USC with the Daily Trojan. I, I do writing, I guess, you know, we'll do a blog here or there. And, and I think writing is such an important part about or such an important part of, of the process of broadcasting on air. I'll try and write stuff out. But as far as like writing for a newspaper or uh, being a beat writer or, or even considering any sort of a, a book or a story like that, that's not something I've ever done. And so maybe this is a silly question, but you've got hours and hours and hours of conversations. How, what's the process of now taking all of that, figuring out the directions you want to go and, and putting that into a book? First of all, I, if you want to maintain your sanity, don't write a book. Like, <laughs> enjoy your, it's, um, I mean, it's freaking, the, it's the worst best. Like it, it actually is. Writing a book is the way, if you want to do it well, dive into it. I mean, I, so just an example, I'm writing a Bo Jackson biography now and I'm about 400 interviews in and I'll probably end up interviewing 800 people for this book. And I, I, I go very old school. Like I print them all out. I have them folders divided by subject, you know, Auburn, Raiders, Raid, uh, Royals, White Sox, Angels Year, all these folders spread out all over my bed. It drives my wife crazy. And I probably end up printing out 10,000 pages. I recycle it all at the end of the chronology of Bo Jackson's life. Like I will go starting from the time he was a boyhood, find every article I can find, buy every book I can find. And then about five months before, so I spent a year and a half or whatever, just researching nonstop all Bo Jackson. And then five months out, one day I'll sit down and I'll say, all right, let's start with the earliest stuff. And I'll get everything from his childhood, all the art, all the interviews, all the articles, all the books that have to do with Bo Jackson growing up in Besmer, Alabama. And I'll just sit down and read them over, highlight, decide what I want to start with and kind of just throw it all out there. And it's, I mean, I'm a sufferer of health anxiety and my health anxiety really kicks in when I'm in the middle of a book. Like all of a sudden stress is so intense that I just am convinced I have like some disease that I didn't even know existed. I mean, it is the biggest mind mess ever, but at the end of the day, you do feel really accomplished and, and there's something about, there's something about getting a book in the mail for the first time that you wrote, opening the box and seeing it there. That still does it for me. Nine books. in. How do you, how do you balance that? Cause like, I think with anything, like I remember thinking, man, if I could ever just broadcast a major league baseball game, I'd have not a care in the world. Like I, you know, <laughs> life would be great. And now it's like, no, I, I like when I talk to students, I say, listen, you, you look at these people and you think, Oh, everything's just perfect for them. Obviously, forget even just the personal stuff, you know, families and, and all the stresses with that and, and challenges. But even professionally, it's like, you know, you still want to 
you know, whether you're you're striving for more, that next step or whatever, like there are stresses that come with these jobs. How do you balance that or how have you learned to to cope with kind of what you just identified to still enjoy it to the point where it's like, I love doing this and I'm willing to deal with A, B, and C. I know it's coming, but you know, the the end result is just like so euphoric or, or so rewarding or whatever it might be. I mean I think part of it is I still really love it. Like, see, I'm, I, I mean, you started this interview by talking about a kid growing, me growing up in Mail Pack, New York, and going to the library and loving sports. So here I am. I mean, just as an example, this is going to sound corny and dumb, but there was this play from Bo Jackson's career when he was with the White Sox, and he made this amazing throw at Yankee Stadium to get Mike Gallego of the Yankees sliding into third. It's one of the best throws I've ever seen in my life. And so two days ago, Robin Ventura was playing third base. I called Robin Ventura, talked to him about the throw. He had these amazing, precise memories. Then I called Mike Gallego, who was the base runner in the play, called him up. He had these amazing, precise memories of this moment. That stuff just does it for me. Like whatever your high is in your job, those are the highs in my job. Like I love that. I love taking a moment from 30 years ago and diving deep and dissecting it and dissecting it again and dissecting it again and breaking it down. I'm just a real nerd in that way. And, and the other thing is I really need this. Like I was the kid in the library lining up to buy these books, you know, like I, and my, and my dream was to be a sports writer, you know, like that was actually, I don't know that many people in the world who get to actually live their dreams, you know, uh, for a million different reasons. And I'm just one of the freaking lucky people who actually gets to do what he set out to do and for all the like it's almost like it almost comes back to Kobe Bryant a lot of ways like Kobe Bryant used to talk about how um you know it's it's not just about scoring 30 against the the Blazers it's about being in the gym at four in the morning taking a thousand jumpers while your teammates are sleeping and I really do believe whatever you do like in this world the satisfaction doesn't come without the hardship like there's no joy without a nightmare of sitting there thinking everything you write sucks, you know, stewing over, over one word that you can't figure out. Like the joy and the satisfaction doesn't come without that. So I, I do try to remind myself when I'm at my lowest that you got to go through the lows to actually get to the high. It's like the high doesn't exist without it. I could probably, we're going to, we might have to do this uh, at some other point because there are, they they always cap me on timing, but there are a lot of things in there. I'd love to to kind of talk further uh, with you about. Um, I, I I do want to I, I I'm going to pivot though. Uh, I guess it, along the same lines of joy and and whatnot. Of all the conversations you've had, not just with the Three Ring Circus uh, story, but uh, you know all the ones you've you've done, uh, all all the books you've written, whatever it might be. Uh, what are what are some of the more unique experiences you've had in talking to people for the sake of contributing to the book. Uh, you, you know, there's a fascinating story you share about uh, J.R. Ryder uh, and showing up to his door. You know, you could share that, but I, what, I'm curious, what are some of the other ones on top of that, if you wouldn't mind sharing that one too, that have kind of just been more than just your, hey, I'm Jeff, will you speak to me, phone call, email type of interactions? Um, are you talking about just this book or any book? And any book. Oh, well, I mean, man, I mean, all right, so I can't these. I did, um, I wrote Brett Favre's biography, a book called Gunslinger. And 
I, I didn't know if he was going to talk to me, and he wound up not talking to me. And one day, he had a, he has a sister named Brandy, who's really nice, in Mississippi. And I, I found her on Facebook and added her as a Facebook friend, and she added me back. And I said, um, I wrote her, and I said, hey, I'm going to, uh, I'm writing a book about your brother. And she wrote back, oh, that's cool. And I said, is there any way, when I'm in Mississippi working on the book, if you would meet me for coffee? And she said, well, text me when you're here, and let's see. So I get to the Kill, Mississippi, where Brett Favre grew up, and I DM her just on Facebook. And I'm like, hey, this is Jeff. I'm the guy writing the book. Any chance you want to get coffee? And she goes, well, I'm at the house. Why don't you just come by the house? My mom is here, too. And I said, uh, okay. And I drive to the house, which is basically on the Favre homestead in the Kill, Mississippi. And I walk in, and she's there. And uh, Benita, uh, Brett's mom, is there. And the mom goes, uh, so is Brett talking to you for the book? And I thought, well, that's it for this. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know. And she goes, all right, well, what do you want to know? <laughs> I was there for three hours. They sent me home with Brett Favre's childhood scrapbooks and said, you know, just get him back to us. Like, and I, I was driving away, and I called my wife, and I was like, oh, man, I just had the best experience. Uh, I spent three hours with Brett Favre's mom and sister. And she goes to me, don't you think that's weird? And I said, well, what's weird about it? And she's like, we don't even know if he's talking to you. And the family just opened up. And I was like, ah, oh, you just kind of got to know what it's like here in Mississippi. And that was, so that was really like really, really, really memorable. Um, you mentioned, I mean, for the Laker book, one of the guys I really want to talk to is J.R. Ryder. And J.R. Ryder, he only spent one year, uh, 99-2000 with the Lakers. And he was known as kind of a, not the best guy with the media when he was a player. And I didn't have a phone number for him. I only had an address. It was in Arizona. And I was in Arizona for, I think, a book event. So I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to drive to J.R. Ryder's house and knock on his door. So I drive out to this house. I get there way too early, like 930 in the morning, but I don't know. I, uh, I knock on the door and a kid answers. And I'm like, Hey, is J.R. Ryder here? He's like, hold on. Closes the door. A woman comes to the door. I'm like, Hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a writer. Well, hold on one second. And uh, I hear some rumbling behind the door, like, rah, 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 rah. and here's J.R. Ryder. He's, he's like, who are you? And I'm like, hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. I, I have my USFL book. I'm like, I wrote this book, and I'm working on a book about that. He's like, no, 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 bro, bro. You don't just come to my door, bro. You don't, no, bro, no. And I, then he opens the door, and he comes out. And I'm like, oh, crap. He's like, bro, man, that's so not cool. I don't, just not cool, man. What are you working on? <laughs> I'm doing a book about the Lakers, Shaq, Kobe. What's that book you have? Oh, that's a book I wrote about the USFL. He's like, is that the Trump League? I was like, yeah. <laughs> he goes, all right, man, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. And he couldn't talk then, but he gave me his phone number. We ended up speaking for two hours, and he was awesome. So there's this, that's the other, actually, that is the other thing about this job. It sends you on these journeys. And I remember when I was young at Sports Illustrated, there was a writer named Jack McCallum. He's a great, great writer. And I just always remember him saying this. He said, you're not going to be the, you're not going to be the richest guy in your class. You're going to be the one with the best stories by far. And I, that's definitely how true. 